the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Nice to have your company. It's the Weekend Variety Wireless with me, Mike Pudu, on your Saturday evening. How are you? Are you good? Filling in for Graham Hill. He's away this weekend. Uh, he's away doing something about the crew murders. Anyway, we're going to replay the crew murder chat he had, the investigational chat. We're going to play that tomorrow night for you. It's very timely, isn't it? Uh, but I hope, Graham, you are having a good night. Hopefully you are not listening because you'll be appalled. <laughs> if you're appalled as well... Just just roll with me, because this is, this is what I do in life. People ask me to do things, and I just put my hand up, and I go, yeah, why not give it a go? And then you start doing it, and you realise that you have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> Speaking of which, have you ever been to a charity auction where you've been a little bit drunk and bought something that perhaps you shouldn't have? Well, if you missed this a little earlier in the news... Have a listen to what this man bought, a drunk Scottish man. This report from ITV. The Fourth Rail Bridge is one of Scotland's most famous landmarks, recognised around the world. That's why Stuart was inspired, after a drink or two, to buy this huge photograph at a sportsman's dinner. It was an auction, it was an open bid, and there was uh, two or three people bidding for it, and uh, I was determined to get it. Why? Just because it's such a beautiful photograph? Well, why did you know? And why not, indeed? Well, Stuart's wife had an answer for that one when he returned home with the giant photograph. Given this is the view outside their living room window. It's quite familiar. It seems Stuart has bought his own view. What were you thinking? I was thinking you can't get too much of the forced rail bridge. You can't get too much of this view? Certainly not, look at it. It's iconic. Yeah. I never tire it. And what did your wife say when you brought that giant photograph of this view home? She says, so why don't you just open the blinds and have a look outside? <laughs> Unfortunately for Stuart, the photograph's fate is in the hands of his exasperated wife. What was your reaction when you first saw it? OMG. OMG. <laughs> it's not staying. Not staying. <laughs> Stuart is now trying to sell his prized photograph, with the proceeds going to charity. He's putting this experience down as a lesson learned. You can have too much of a good thing. What an idiot! He bought this huge photograph of the same bridge he can see out of these huge windows in his house. We all do dumb things when we are drunk, don't we? A lesson to be learned here, I think. It is Radio Live. Coming up very soon, we have for you human statistics on the Weekend Variety Wireless. Jonathan Dodd from Ipsos joins us. And one of the most fascinating things we're going to cover tonight is the psychology behind a mum taking time off work to raise a baby. Is it a good thing for the baby when you take time off? Is it a good thing for you when you don't go back to work and actually raise your child? He will answer that because there's been some fascinating studies done. A huge study, in fact, and they've all combined these studies together. And he's going to give us those results soon. It's the Weekend Variety Wireless on Saturday night with me, Mike, filling in for Graham Hill. 
This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Us humans, we work in very mysterious ways, don't we? Welcome to Weekend Variety Wireless with me, Mike, filling in for Graham Hill this weekend. He is away, uh, but he left me a good list of instructions and also gave me the contact for all the people that he talks to, like the very clever and I would say quite often confused, not because of him not understanding what he does, but just confused because he probably sucks in so much information. Jonathan Dodd from Ipsos. Ipsos, of course, collect data from around the world, and they give us the results. And it's a very good evening to you, Jonathan. How are you tonight? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, Mike. Have you had a good week? Oh, it's always good. I love what you do for a job. How long have you been involved with this? Oh, God, uh, 25 years. What got you into it? I figure as long as you're studying people, you've always got a moving target and there's always something new. Okay, and your family, do you analyse them a lot or do you leave that out of your question? (laughs) (laughs) It's funny how you can just switch off. It's like any job, you just switch off. I know, good. Yes, there's a problem sometimes you think, now what do I know professionally I can bring to this situation to understand it better and that does pay off, but no, we're not like psychologists or anything, analysing everybody all the time. (laughs) No, but I guess the study of people and what's going on in the world, there must be something new every week and that's what we're about to crack into. Uh, So social media and its help with curbing loneliness, we're going to touch on that. Is that a good thing or a bad thing, Jonathan? Well, it's neither. And so you see, we did a big project in the States for a big insurance company over there called Sigma, and it was looking at loneliness, and there's actually a way of measuring loneliness. UCLA have got this scale they use, these certain questions, and so we did a survey of about 20,000 Americans for this. And what was interesting was that, um, yeah, you get these results where, you know, people often say they feel a bit lonely or nobody knows them that well, you know, half said sometimes they feel a bit left out or a bit alone. But what was interesting was that um, the degree in which you use social media didn't um, relate to the degree of loneliness that you felt. Okay, no, because this is the thing with this subject for me, is that I've often looked at Facebook and people, you know, they have a large amount of followers and they, you know, are in this little community online. But effectively, they are alone whilst they're using that. So is it a real reflection of, you know, how fulfilled their lives are when it comes to actually having people in it? You can have a large amount of group of friends on Facebook. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have got friends that are fulfilling that need. Yeah, yeah. And so you see, one of the key results is that younger people, particularly aged between 18 to 22, show the highest loneliness scores, and the oldest people have the lowest scores. So right. older people are the least lonely. So people look at that and go, well, aha, younger people live in front of screens, not really truly interacting, so therefore they look social, but they're not actually um, engaging with quality relationships. But when you actually factored in the degree of social media usage and you found older people with the same amount of social media as younger people, you'd find that social media usage wasn't the issue. And what it really is is the degree to which you get together with people in person. Right. And that's about lifestyle. You know, older people often they have to often have more free time. They're not dealing with kids and that all the time. They've got more disposable income. They're often out there socialising. And in particular, I think it's because older people um, grew up and learned to socialise and developed all their social relationships before social media. 
And I think so, that's something we are missing in the world is that art of socialising. Yeah, so they, while they can take on social media, we've all known the grandmother or what have you that's now using Facebook and all the rest of it, and they can use it a lot. They don't use it to the detriment of their in-person socialisation. So Brilliant, okay. That. Yep. So that's quite an interesting thing. And I think the, the worry, you, know, you can sit there and go, okay, so social media is not a big issue. It's about your lifestyle and degree to which you engage with others. But... If older people learnt to personally engage with others, and that's how they're staving off loneliness, are younger people going to similarly learn about the value of in-person socialisation, or are they going to miss that altogether and end up being lonely, lonelier in their old age than today's old age people, if you follow my... Follow yeah, my no, no, okay, so of the people that I guess were polled in this, because it was obviously a pretty big survey, well, was it 20,000 American yeah. adults? So so of those people that, that were polled, did they feel that social media allowed people to know them better or not? Well, it's, when you say know them better, it's, yeah, everybody knows there's a bit of a face and you don't necessarily get to know the the true person behind their social media image. And it's probably more so in the States where, you know, that the whole show out presenting the perfect life is probably more pronounced. Mm. But social media can also enable you to actually um, generally get to know people better because it also lets you meet other people who share a lot more close interests to you than maybe the people in your immediate physical proximity. Right. And, mm. and of course, you can use it for social meetups and club meetups and the rest of it. So... Yeah, again, social media can actually facilitate more in-person relationships and therefore um, preempt loneliness. But again, so long as you use it as a way to facilitate better relationships and not to replace them or, or substitute good relationships for shallow ones. So basically, if you've got a lot of friends on Facebook, that doesn't necessarily mean that you've got a lot of friends in real life. No, but you can, if you use Facebook to say, hey, shall we meet up on Friday? Like in person, shock horror. Yes. The nickel factory social media is helping you. Right. Okay. Cool. And, and there's all those these apps at the moment, and you know, you look at what the um, the controversy has been in New Zealand in the last week over over Heartbreak Island. Uh, you know, basically what they are saying is that is a real reflection of how harsh Tinder is in real life. You actually play that out with real human beings, and people are appalled. Yeah, and I guess it's because you're seeing real human beings. Yes. You're not just seeing an emoji, you're seeing a yeah. real person mm. who's mm. genuinely upset. And um, you say what you want about reality TV. At the end of the day, you're seeing real people getting upset. Yeah. And it's not just like, oh, you know, sad face. And what about, what about the chatting online? Is it good to do that? Does that help curb loneliness? Well, again, it's the quality. So messaging with real words as opposed to... Snapchat, for example, right, or emojis versus real words. Well, what about you know, the like? The like on the Facebook is that is that an indication that things are, are good in your life, or does that not help? No, I don't think it's pretty shallow, isn't it? Yeah, well, and I'm one of those people too. That is the thing, Jonathan, isn't it? Because I look at my Facebook feed, I think that you know, uh, oh, that's cool that my you know my friend over in America is getting married, or my friend in the South Island's getting married, or, or got a job promotion. I just click the like button, and for me, I feel like I'm keeping in touch with them, but that doesn't really mean anything, does it? Yeah, no. yeah. I really try now, for, rather than just click like, or do click like, but then you add the congrats. It's just the effort of adding a little word right. to say, good on you guys, or congratulations, have a great wedding. That makes all the difference. And it's just like, yeah, somebody walk past you in the street and giving you a thumbs up. 
or stopping to actually say, say hello. G'day, Mike. Yes. I heard you getting married. Good on you. Mm. And just having that chat. It's like everything in life, a bit of personalisation and a bit of effort. Goes a long way, doesn't it? And people want to feel fulfilled. I mean, you know, you can have rubbish. You can have a rubbish job. You can have, you know, a rubbish living situation. But uh, if you've got good people around you, uh, then uh, it fulfills you, doesn't it? So don't just assume that social media is going to do the job for you. Well, it's been well proven that um, past the per certain point. Uh, the degree of money and all the rest of it that makes very little difference to your actual um, satisfaction in life. It's all about your social relationships. Wow, okay, good. Oh, I like this. Jeez, you, this is such a fascinating subject, and I'm quite pleased that the oldies have done all right, you know. Basically, they've realised that chat to chat, you know, meeting up and actually having a conversation over a game of cards is, is much better than just liking a photo on Facebook. <laughs> good on them. Okay, cool. Uh, this is a great one. How your mind twists your reality cognitive biases so tell me more about that can you explain yeah, that for me well every every week we're talking about the different ways in which our brains can fool us or basically pull us away from being highly rational sensible logical people you know <laughs> why why are not all dr spock and why are we all you know dr ruth um <laughs> and some of these sound very obvious and some of them are really all head spinners and today's one that i call curiosity tendency mm-hmm and most of our most of our psychology comes out of our natural evolution. You know, people that have a certain psychological tendency that that promotes survival are the ones who survive. And so, just as we have certain physical attributes that evolve, we have certain mental mental attributes that yes. evolve as well. And if it wasn't for curiosity, we wouldn't explore, we wouldn't invent, we wouldn't find new food sources, new inventions, ways to be safer and all this. So. The whole curiosity tendency is great when you sit there going, well, what about this and what about that? But talking of social media, what about when you start clicking on that link because it's interesting and then that link's interesting and then that link gives you 20 mind-blowing photos of 80 stars and what they look like today and all of a sudden three hours has gone by because you're constantly having your curiosity um, you know, checked and raised on the rest of it. Well, no, and I call that... Doing anything. I call that getting sucked into the vortex because yeah. you do. You just keep clicking, 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 and, th- and that is curiosity. But at the end of it, you've wasted three hours of your life and achieved nothing, really. Exactly. And the thing is that every time you're curious and then you get an answer, you get a little dopamine rush. It's like when you see a like on your Facebook and all the rest of it, and there's been a lot of research, and there are specialty addiction psychologists that work for these social media outlets like Facebook. They actually know... And also games. Yes. You know, gaming. The, the designers of games and poker machines or is that they know how addiction works and how to keep people uh, engaged and sucked into this vortex. Oh, yeah, I've, be, so, I've, been, I've been there, done that. Yeah. yeah. So that's why. And what they're doing is they work out how curiosity is. Raise a question, raise, raise a, a curiosity or something that makes you think there's something odd going out there and I won't rest until I find the solution. And as I say, if it's about inventing the electric car, it's great. Mm -hmm. Or if it's spending time inefficiently, it's not so good. Um, Or if you're using it to procrastinate because you're just like, oh, I'll look into this, I'll look into that, I'll look into everything else, and you don't actually solve your problem. In (laughs) fact, some people have even looked and they go, well, if you're not really curious about the big things in life and you just focus on what's ahead of you, then you might just solve an immediate problem, but you're not thinking about the bigger issues. So, um, 
you know, in an age when everybody was just thinking about making faster and faster steam engines, yes, because they did, somebody else said, well, maybe there's a different option to steam, maybe there's petrol or something, and they go and do something different. And a lot of people like to say that's how the Romans fails because they were just mechanics, but the Greeks actually thought more differently and had a greater curiosity. But well, yeah, I'll go the great. Okay, well, no, hang on. I've got a question for you, Jonathan. What about the curiosity that can be dangerous in terms of there must have been somebody who, when petrol was invented, decided to drink it, you know? <laughs> Or, gee, I wonder what heroines really like. Right. Yeah, yes, no, you're right. <laughs> like, how do we get to that level? But how yeah, do we know to stop it? Yeah, and there are psychopaths that go, oh, I just wanted to know what it was like to kill a person. True, yes, what it was yeah, like to feel that knife through their, through their chest. Yep. Wow. <laughs> curiosity. So, yeah, you have to just look at it about working out why you're trying to solve that issue. Is it actually about mis avoiding something or investigating something that's unhealthy and so forth, that little, that little twinge. So with all these cognitive biases, it's about if you recognise it, then you can try to um, manage it and try to re recognise whether it's actually taking you down the negative route or not. Can most people work out by listening right now whether their curiosity tendency is a good thing or a bad thing? If you've got addictions, is it a bad thing? Well, I think if their addictions listening to Weekend Variety Wireless, it's a good thing because this, this programme is... A classic curiosity program with lots of tidbits and interesting discussions and a, and a real mixed bag. Well, and, and that's what I love about it because it's stuff yeah. that you perhaps wouldn't even think about. So you hear yourself and I talking about something, then your mind starts ticking. You're getting that curiosity tendency and you start imagining, you know, yeah. paths that you've taken in your lives and the reasons why you've done things. I, yeah. yeah, okay, okay, so cool. I imagine when, people, when the audience doesn't listen to Weekend Variety, they're watching QI. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay, cool. So okay, that curiosity tendency is quite an interesting subject then. If I wanted to find out more about that, explore it myself. Cause <laughs> See, there it is. It's come, it's come to me straight away, that curiosity tendency. Um, do, do you guys, like, do you have a Facebook or research papers or anything we can read? Uh, we haven't done much on the curiosity one in Ipsos because that's one of the psychological things, but anybody can just Google up that kind of a thing or, or um, interesting if you just Google up Ipsos polls or Ipsos research, there's all manner of things like that, which we tend to talk about most weeks on Weekend Variety, all sorts of bits and pieces like that. With that Graham Hill, though, he's got a curious mind, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. How does he feed it, though? Well, it's his job, isn't it? He's paid to actually go and investigate new stuff and talk to interesting people. It's pretty good. Yeah, no, no, he is. He is amazing. And, and it's the thing, you listen to his podcast, you know, when you miss a show on a, on a weekend and you just, you again, you get sucked into that vortex, but stuff that you probably would never discuss before. Well, I mean, and that's the beauty I find in being a professional market researcher. You get paid to research and find out stuff. Mm. <laughs> what was the worst, actually, just before we move on to our next subject, what was the... What was the one thing, I guess, that uh, that got you excited in the last year? Or oh, well, so far this year, because we're halfway through the year, Jonathan. What's the one thing that you've been researching? Market research? Oh, I did, a, <laughs> I did a fantastic job, and it was looking at... Um, well, I can't be too specific, but it was looking at um, the New Zealand healthcare system in relation to cancer treatment, because you know how a lot of cancer treatments in New Zealand aren't funded by mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you're looking at you're looking at people's perceptions of cancer, perceptions of cancer treatment in the New Zealand health system, 
And then you've got all these issues that we like to pretend that we're not going to get cancer and it happens to other people. Then you've got issues about whether you're allowed to actually denigrate the New Zealand health system or not because we're all run by underfunded angels. Mm-hmm. There's an issue of patriotism in having a good free healthcare system that we have. It was one of those fascinating projects where you're dealing with people's denial of, of possible death. Yes. You're looking at patriotism and how we perceive a healthcare system. Real, real sort of quite gutsy stuff, especially when you sit there talking about um, planning for, for possible death, you know, and you're talking to people that have been dealing with cancer and so forth like that. It's it's pretty pretty grounding stuff, but yeah. fascinating too. Yeah, yeah, I bet. And, you know, do you have any family members that you know, you've used as, I guess, an example and applied your research to their situation? Uh, you can use individual anecdote stories like that to support anything so we actually try to avoid that right okay okay no go yeah the worst thing is the client that goes i know a person who did this and therefore i don't agree and it's it's just one person you've got to be somewhat impartial and objective and apply good science in this stuff okay no good and speaking of good science a pm steps down as she becomes a mum uh there's been you know a lot of debate about the pros and cons of working mums headlines as well and i just saw jacinda just the other day at field days she was walking a lot. She looked very tired and I did. I started thinking pretty fast whether or not it was a good thing for her to do. Then I started thinking about her workload and whether or not she'd even, you know, turn off her phone on the day that she's giving birth or whether she would still take calls. So, you know, what have you guys found into your research of mums? Well, it's not so much our research, but I always like to look at something topical in New Zealand and um, I had a bit of a look around at this and it was interesting how, obviously because it's quite Whenever you research the issue about working mums, and then the, the issue there isn't really so much about the mum, it's the effect on the kids, and kids in daycare, for example. And so, like, I heard an interview yesterday with um, Gail Clarkford, and he's planning on doing another TV program at the end of the year, so you're like, he's off there fishing, and, and um, Jacinda's back at work. Mm-hmm. You know, kids probably in daycare for a bit, and daycare can be very good. Yes. And there's been a huge amount of psychology, uh, psychological research into the series, you'd expect. And it's interesting that, you know, you'll, you'll see these headlines in the news that go, um, children in daycare, um, you know, they suffer this or that, you know, kind of thing, you'll see these problems. And there's a few examples I found here. There was a study that found that if your mother, if the mother who's on a low-income solo mum, the children tend to do better in daycare because the mums are out there working, healthier and happier, they've got more money coming in, the less stress. They can pick up their kids from daycare and and there's happy mum and everybody's right. Yes. But when you've got a wealthy dual-income family, the benefit of daycare is less pronounced because they're going for one, you know, know, whether you're in daycare or not, you're, you're still in a fairly safe safe, you know, um, high-income families, right. you no know, big dramas and all. So, so even as soon as you look at the daycare issues, like, well, what's the parent situation? What do you, what, you know, kids don't have the same experience of daycare. It's the situation of their parents and their situation outside daycare that influences the overall thing. So at the end of the day, I was looking at this, and there's a piece of work that was published by the American Psychological Association, and there was a study done, what they call a meta-analysis, where yeah. they analyse the analysis. 69 studies done over 50 years. And that, well, I loved it. I was looking at this article here, and it's like, you know what? If the kids can play and explore and feel safe and feel loved, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
my goodness. Uh, no, because look, my sister had this awkward position recently, and she's gone through this, where she had a baby, and then she had to weigh up those pros and cons. Does she go back to work where she was paying X amount of dollars for daycare? By the time she'd paid that, you know, she was only probably making $30, $40 extra a week by going back to work, or does she stay at home and give that quality time, as people say, to their yep. baby, so that becomes a happier child? And it was a real tough decision for her to decide on whether or not her happiness in going back to work meant that she had, you know, that $30 to $40 extra to make that kid's life a bit better, or whether or not she stayed at home to make that kid's life better but struggled financially. Well, I bet the issue there wasn't really the $30, $40. It was the impact to her career from taking a few years out. Yes. The other, and that's less tangible, so it's a harder discussion. So when, when mums are making these decisions, are they making it for themselves or are they making it for the babies? And I guess that's what yep. some of this research was, uh, was about. Yeah, but I think if, if there are working mums listening and they know that their kids are in a really good daycare mm. and the kids feel safe, they, they enjoy going to daycare, they don't mind going there, and the caregivers at the daycare and the staff are good and developing good relationships with the kids, then, you know, don't stress. Okay, nice. Well, there you go. And I'm sure there's a lot of mums that are in that position that are listening right now. And likewise, there are plenty of stay-at-home mums that can be in terrible relationships. They can be financially stressed and all that. Just being stay-at-home doesn't mean you're, you're an angel. Just as being and having your kids in daycare doesn't mean you're the devil. It's, it's all the nature of the, the quality of the relationship rather than the situation. I like that. That's a nice way to put it. And that's going to make people feel more comfortable. And I, you know, because I, I don't know, why, why do we as a country, why are we so concerned about the Prime Minister having a baby? Is that, is, what does that say about our psyche? Uh, well, I think whenever we know anybody in our circle who's having a kid, we're interested because, and, and I think, like you say, you've had these discussions about your sister, there's the people at work that might come back to work too early, you judge them, there's the nature of the fact that she's in a public role. Um, I, that's just human nature, and, people, and whether it's a PM or, or a celebrity or somebody in your soap opera, you just get involved, and of course when you've got kids, everybody feels like they're an expert. <laughs> well, actually, that is that. I've got friends that are having a babies, and she's been overwhelmed. Well, a baby, not babies, uh, and she's been overwhelmed with the amount of information that she's been given every day. It. You know, of course it is, and it's a very public baby, and it's a very public role that her mother's got. Mm. So mm. you're damned if you do, and damned da- if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> so true. But that's why your job is fascinating because you can present some findings to us and we can make informed decisions based on years and years of research. How many, uh, what, what did you call this, a, 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 meta, a meta-analyst? A meta-analysis. Somebody went to look over 69 studies, worked out all the key themes and so forth and worked out what was, you know, because any one study on its own can often be quite, quite uh, problematic. So when you're looking at, it's almost like doing a survey of surveys. You just look yeah. at multiple studies and you see the same thing coming through time and time again, then you know pretty much <laughs> consistent finding. So 69 studies over 50 years and basically summarised as young children need to play and explore in an environment where they feel safe and love for infants. This ideally means caregivers to whom they feel they belong. Yeah. And frankly, I'm quite happy at my age to be able to play and explore in a safe environment with people that love me. <laughs> really change. <laughs> yes, true. We all love to do that. Hey, Jonathan, been absolutely fascinating. That's all right. Thanks, Mike. I've uh, really enjoyed it. I love filling in on the show. I've, 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 I feel like my brain is full of so many things, which oh. is which is a great way to spend a, you know, Saturday and a Sunday night. So uh, thanks. Yeah. Uh, pleasure. Hopefully yeah. I'll get to talk to you again.
Jonathan Dodd there from Ipsos. It's the weekend variety wireless with Mike on your Saturday evening. Thank you for listening no matter where you are around this fine country of ours. If you're driving, hopefully you are driving to the conditions as they say. It's got a bit of fog around the country uh, this morning. Potentially some more fog tomorrow. So if you are flying, I would check on that. Hey, coming up very soon, don't forget after 11 o'clock, Don McGlashan, part one and part two, with Graham Hill, if you're missing him. Also on the way, uh, from the archives, this is something I like to do uh, when I'm filling in on various shows because I'm fascinated by stories that are old, but fascinated by history, I guess you could say. But a lot of my friends right now, they're in that process of having babies and uh, buying homes. And uh, for a lot of them, no matter where they are in New Zealand, it's a bit of a struggle. But I found this little seven-minute documentary that basically takes us on a journey of what it's like to own a home in New Zealand back in 1946. When you listen to it, there's so many parallels to what is happening right now. Nothing much has changed in all that time. From 1946 to 2018, what has changed with the way we approach buying homes from the archives is coming up next. It's Radio Live, the weekend Variety Wireless. Mike Putty filling in for Graham Hill. You're tuned in to the weekend Variety Wireless. Again, Variety Wireless with Mike filling in for Graham Hill Saturday evening. Jeez, the year's flying by fast, isn't it? Just about halfway through the year. Halfway through June. June's sort of halfway through the year. We're halfway through the year. That scares me. And over the years, we've talked a lot about housing. But this has been a conversation that has been going on since 1946. Something I love doing in my spare time. Call me crazy. Uh, I love looking at old footage, old documentary series about New Zealand. You learn a lot. And sometimes you come to the realisation that we haven't really gone that far. I present to you on Weekend Variety Wireless a new segment called From the New Zealand Archives. Somebody's gone to the effort to document all of this, turn it into a digital platform. And I, lo I watched, I watched and I watched. And this is from 1946. Have a listen to how they talk about housing back in 1946 and the struggles that people were going through and then relate that to the year 2018 to be honest with you not much difference from the archives on the weekend variety wireless it's radio live from timber and flax and rushes the maoris and later the first settlers in new zealand built simple shelters the wealthier settlers often brought materials and fittings for their houses with them and with the good traditions of Georgian architecture, built homes that most of us would be pleased to live in today. This house, built by Busby at Waitangi in 1833, was restored in 1934. One of the architects was Mr. W.M. Page. Busby's house even today would be a good house to live in. And there were others like it, built at that time. The mission house at Tauranga was completed in 1847 and has been perfectly preserved by its present owner, Miss Alice Maxwell. This is also a good house by modern standards. Unfortunately, these fine houses were ideals that few could achieve. Most families could not build anything more than simple huts of rope or timber or sods, or, in some cases, clay. 
These clay huts were very successful. Some are still lived in today. Their simplicity and grace are the result of their builders having little time for fanciful decoration. Then, slowly, New Zealand began to prosper. As some settlers made money, so they wished to have larger homes. In some cases, they wanted people to know how much better off they were than their fellows. So they built large, pretentious houses that were often made to resemble something they were not. Houses were small imitations of castles and eastern temples. Poorer people followed the trend and put false fronts on their houses to make them look bigger. Wood was made to look like stone and cut out wooden scrolls and ironwork were added for no real purpose except to make the house look more elaborate. We still have many examples of what houses looked like at the turn of the century. Inside, they had narrow, dark passages, and the best room and the drawing room faced the street, even if there was no sun on that side of the street at all. It was more important to be conventional than to be comfortable. Later, we became modern and had equally complicated and meaningless designs with lots of ornamentation. But because we used straight lines, we thought it gave us the right to laugh at the Victorians. I'm afraid none of these so-called improvements have given us the simplicity, repose and grace of the houses that had been built 100 years before. Some people did have good homes. Houses that weren't modernistic or period or quaint, but that faced the sun and suited the climate and didn't pretend to be anything else but good common sense houses for New Zealanders to live in. But we hadn't enough of them. We hadn't enough of any sort of house, even the old uncomfortable ones. We had people crowded up in old out-of-date houses in busy streets. A nation's prosperity isn't measured in exports and show and false fronts. It's in the way people live and in how much sun they get, where the kids grow up and in how the sanitation works. Forty thousand families living in houses that should have been pulled down, living in rooms and flats wherever they could find a roof over their heads. Sometimes several families in one house. 40,000 families in 1935. As economic conditions improved, they looked for better accommodation. Young people who had been living with their parents wanted their own homes. But New Zealand was house-hungry, and young people didn't find it easy. To build a house would cost, say, £1,600. I presume you haven't that amount in cash? Well, most of us haven't. You could borrow the money on mortgage by obtaining either a private loan, a building society loan, or a state advances loan. And what, uh, what cash would we need to have? 
Well, for what you want, you could manage on, say, 200 pounds. 200 pounds, but we haven't got that much money. We've only about uh, 100 pounds. And with a baby coming, there'll be all I don't see how you could manage with less. You'd have to buy a section. But with the baby, we'll have to have some way to live. It's very difficult, isn't it? I don't know. You might find a builder who has built a house on spec. They sometimes build four or five at a time. He might sell you one on a small deposit. I really can't suggest anything else. If you hadn't the deposit, you couldn't buy, you couldn't build. You had to rent. Rents were high and houses were short. You took what you could get. One room's no place for a baby, but it's a roof, isn't it? It's a dining room, it's a kitchen, it's a nursery, and a front hall, and a laundry, and a playroom, and a living room. It's a room. You'll take it? Yes, you'll take anything when you're house hungry. Don't be fussy, it's a roof over your head, isn't it? There you have it from the archives on Radio Live with me, Mike, filling in for Graham Hill on the weekend, Variety Wireless. I don't know, I don't know whether he's fond of that segment, but I just put it in there because it's my show tonight. It's called Variety, so we are having a bit of everything. Coming up after 11 o'clock, after the news at 11 o'clock here at Radio Live, we've got Don McGlash in part one and part two, as hosted by Graham Hill. If you have not heard this, you must stick around. Don McGlasham, hilarious, and I think Graham Hill gets the most out of Don McGlasham that I've ever heard. Both two very incredible men having a conversation about music and life and what it's been like for the band. So that interview is coming up after 11 o'clock if you missed it. Up next, though, I promised this at the beginning of the night. What does denuclearization mean? Can't even say it this late at night. <laughs> what does denuclearization mean? It's a little variety wireless extra for you up in just a minute. The Weekend Variety Wireless. And it's the Weekend Variety Wireless with me, Mike, filling in for Graham Hill. Saturday evening, the wee hours of Saturday evening, just about 11 o'clock news is coming up very soon. One of the most interesting things I saw in the past week was, of course, the uh, meeting with, with Trump and Kim, Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. And what I was fascinated about was denuclearization. Is that even a word? Am I saying it correctly? I'm not sure. But I thought, what does that actually mean? Uh, and, and this, I found, was a, a balanced report, I guess you could say, from the team at Vox, which has been published on YouTube. It's all about what denuclearization means from one man's perspective. Have a listen. If the US and North Korea had a Facebook page, each country would change their status to it's complicated now. It's not what we had as recently as 2017 when Trump was threatening to go to war over and over again with North Korea. They will be met with fire and fury 
like the world has never seen. 핵단추가 내 사무실 책상 위에 항상 놓여 있다는 것. Now they're not only on speaking terms, but literally sitting in a room with each other. We will have a terrific relationship, I have no doubt. Chairman Kim and I just signed a joint statement in which he reaffirmed his unwavering commitment to complete denuclearization. The problem with this is that Trump and North Korea have very different views about what should be accomplished when you denuclearize the Korean Peninsula. The U.S. wants North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons. North Korea wants the United States to stop isolating it diplomatically and stop cutting it off from international markets. In theory, there's the makings of a deal there. For Trump, denuclearization means something called CVID, complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization of North Korea. They give up their nuclear weapons, and the U.S. will always be able to make sure that they have gone away. However, for North Korea, denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula means something completely different. It means, sure, North Korea gets rid of its nukes, but the U.S. also withdraws all its troops from the Korean Peninsula and ends its alliance with South Korea. This has been unacceptable to every American president in the past. We will be stopping the war games, which will save us a tremendous amount of money, unless and until we see that the future negotiation is not going along like it should. What seems really good for North Korea is really bad by American standards. There's just not a great middle ground that could actually roll back North Korea's nuclear program. No country with a nuclear program as advanced as North Korea's has ever denuclearized. A 2017 estimate from the Defense Intelligence Agency concluded that North Korea probably has up to 60 nuclear weapons. It also has ballistic missiles that could potentially hit the American homeland and potentially a nuclear weapon small enough to fit on one of those rockets. National Security Advisor John Bolton floated an idea for dealing with North Korea that he called the Libya model. So this is to reference an agreement struck with the Bush administration by then Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi to give up his nuclear program. However, Gaddafi's program was way more limited. He wasn't really even close to a bomb. And perhaps more to the point, about eight years after this agreement was struck in 2011, the U.S. backed uh, an uprising against Gaddafi, which killed him. To Kim, Libya is an example of what happens if you trust the United States too much. It's an example of what happens if you give up your nuclear weapons. It's the main reason they want them is to deter an attack. Ideally, they want to deter any war from starting by making the war seem really scary and really dangerous and really bloody. Uh, normalizing relations is something that I would expect to do, I would hope to do when everything's complete. Normalization is a prize from North Korea's point of view. It would mean a U.S. embassy in Pyongyang, a North Korean embassy in Washington, ambassadors, formal diplomatic receptions. And like, I'm saying this, and you're probably imagining that sounds ridiculous. And you're right, because it's North Korea. Unwavering commitment to the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. This is the document that we just signed. It's hard to imagine the end game being some kind of big, big deal. What's more likely is that nothing changes or things get worse again. I think he's going to do these things. I may be wrong. I mean, I may stand before you in six months and say, hey, I was wrong. I don't know that I'll ever admit that, but I'll find, a, I'll find some kind of an excuse. So what do you think of that denuclearization? Will it ever happen? That's just one man's perspective. Thought you might find it interesting. Had a bit of time up our sleeves. I thought, why not share that with you? Be fascinating to see what happens in the future from that meeting. 
say what you like about Trump, and I'm sure John will have something to say about that tomorrow. Uh, but, you know, I guess he's... The, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the unconventional approach to politics can sometimes work. Maybe that's been the problem over the years. Generation after generation of politicians with no new ideas and a fresh approach and, well, can sometimes have devastating consequences, but can also have some good consequences. Which one of those two are we going to see? I'm not too sure. New sport and weather is coming up with our News Hub Radio Live team. And then after that, it's Don McGlashan here on the weekend, Variety Wireless.